so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. In the SBC, in the Southern Baptist Conversation, I mean, <laughs> did you hear what I said? I mean, huh? I mean, no, what? You I said mean? I mean at the end there. You said like I mean. No, I said racial unity in the Southern Baptist Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I missed that one. I just, I, I finished it for you in my mind. It's convention. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me is my faithful sidekick, who also happens to be my boss, Brent Leatherwood. Here I am. I'm here to serve, Lindsay. You are here to serve. That's right. A Mark 1044 mindset. That's right. what you say. Yes. Um, Chiefest Br- servant of them all. Yeah, that's right. I'll let you know if you continue to be a cheetah servant. <laughs> I'll let you know if you fall down on the job. Brent, I have to tell you that I have heard lately that I need to um, have a more conversational tone in my voice. What? So I'm going to be working on, on this, this on podcast? the podcast. Well, not always in the podcast. Where but- has this? Oh, just in life? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Does this come from your husband, Justin? No. You know, Lindsay. <laughs> Sometimes I read ads for this here podcast, uh-huh. and so I need to be more conversational. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm just working on being conversational with you today. Okay. So let's enter into a conversation about what the ERLC has been featuring this week. Are you ready for it? Let's do it. Okay. Well, I really have one piece to highlight because this week we have been focusing on racial unity. And that's because you are the fearless host of an event we're recording today on a Thursday. Um, And so it's this afternoon with Dr. Fred Luter and Dr. Ed Litton, and it's called Racial Unity in the Southern Baptist Convention. So we are really looking forward to that event. And if you, well, obviously you might have missed it because we're airing this tomorrow. But if you look at our socials, our Twitter or Facebook we will be posting that uh, video for you to enjoy and for you to learn from. So there's a piece by a pastor in Alabama. His name is Micah Gaston. And he actually, I believe, was in the college ministry of one of our colleagues, Jill Wagner, and her husband, Brant. And uh, he has a piece titled, Four Reasons Why I Am Committed to a Racially Reconciling Church. And I haven't quite heard it put that way before, But he talks about serving in Mobile, Alabama. It's a diverse community and it's scarred by its racial history. And as he has served in ministry and as he has studied the scripture, he says that he's convinced that a racially reconciling church pleases God and is a powerful proclamation of the gospel. And of course, we would agree when you look all throughout scripture, you see God's plan to bring together a multi-ethnic people for his glory. So these are the four reasons he pointed out why he is committed to this kind of church. 
displays the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. It's essential for reaching the next generation, displays the power of the gospel, and displays a preview of heaven where we know that in Revelation, every tribe, tongue, and language, and nation will be gathered together, worshiping Jesus as one family. No more divisions based on anything. No more sin, no more problems, no more pain, just unity and love in Christ. Uh, It's a beautiful uh, hope for us to have in our Savior, and it's a reality that we want to work toward, even in the midst of a fallen world, because He's called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Well, I love the the title that you picked for Micah's piece, and the fact that he calls his church a reconciling, a racially reconciling church. And in many ways, right, all of our churches are hopefully churches that are are talking about reconciliation, because as you mentioned, it is ever present in scripture. And that brought to mind for me, you know, Colossians 1, uh, 19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So we, we have been reconciled because of Jesus's death and resurrection. And, and so here, uh, this piece is emphasizing the, the racial unity aspect uh, of that reconciliation. And, and so it's a perfect piece uh, for this week where we are purposely emphasizing, you know, racial unity efforts within the church. Uh, and it's something that the Southern Baptist Convention has uh, spoken to on multiple occasions. And it's why we are hosting that, that conversation that you mentioned with Dr. Fred Luter and Dr. Ed Litton. And as many folks will know, Dr. Luter was uh, the first African-American president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And as anyone uh, who has been around Dr. Ed Litton, they know that that Ed is is just, gosh, he is on fire uh, for racial unity. And the two of them have, have come together uh, to create what's known as the Unify Project, which the RLC is a partner of. And, and what we all hope uh, will be an initiative that is, is able to come alongside churches as, as they more purposely think through additional ways to accomplish uh, racial unity. So that's going to be a part of, of what our conversation is about. And, and I, hope, I hope any of our listeners, uh, anyone uh, who is interested, will, will tune in for that, uh, at least after the fact, given that, that this podcast will air after it. <laughs> after it. But uh, it, should be, it should be easily available, and I expect it will be a fruitful conversation for anyone who tunes in. We definitely look forward to that conversation. I do, like you said, I think it will be very fruitful and helpful. And of course, we don't seek diversity for diversity's sake, although diversity is a good thing. But we we seek it because we want to re- reflect that our God has made all people in his image and that he's calling all people to be reconciled to himself through the blood of Jesus. And he's calling all people to be reconciled to one another we have, as Micah said, we have one common ancestry in Adam, and it is God's will for us to be unified in Christ. So we want to begin to reflect that in our churches as God gives us grace and helps us by His Spirit. And I'm thankful for this Unify Project and am eager to see how the Lord uses it, especially within the Southern Baptist Convention. Now it's time for the culture section, Brent, where we talk about the things going on in the world. What are you going to highlight for us today? Well, the big thing domestically this week was the president's annual State of the Union address, which he gave on Tuesday night. Did Were you able to stay up for it, Lindsay? Be honest. Do you really want me to be honest? Oh, I want you to be... Is my yes, Does my job absolutely. depend on it? Well... Because we were supposed to be watching it, weren't we? 
it, all of us were encouraged uh, to watch it just so that we were up to speed on what the president was proposing for the next year. I have year. to confess, <laughs> I, no, I, I didn't watch it um, because— That's okay. My husband—it's not something my husband would want right. to watch. Right. No, it's okay uh, because I've got a recap for you right here. Oh, good. Well, yes. And I was watching the rundown on our Slack work channel oh, as well. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so this rundown, this recap of the State of the Union— is uh, reported by the dispatch, and they say this. His promises for the next two years included both implementation of already passed legislation and a wish list for more initiatives. President Biden celebrated an insulin price cap of $35 a month for Medicare patients and then urged the price cap's expansion to all Americans. Biden also nodded to deficit reduction, but his big ideas for accomplishing that goal, raising taxes on the wealthy and big businesses, are unlikely to make it through the current Congress. The Junk Fee Prevention Act he boosted could stand a slightly better chance. It would require businesses like hotels, airlines, and ticket sellers, such as Ticketmaster, in proof of Taylor Swift supremacy, to show their fees up front. That's a a little aside that's tucked in there about the recent meltdown with Ticketmaster when Taylor Swift tickets went online. I think I have that correct, right? I'm not I'm not quite up to speed on my my Swifty knowledge, but I think that's an accurate reflection of of what happened recently. Yes. And then well then they fixed it with Beyonce's rollout. That's right. Uh, the dispatch story goes on to say this compared to the economy, everything else got short shrift in Biden's speech, but he did quickly hit a string of other topics. Acknowledging the presence and the audience of Brandon Say, who disarmed the Monterey Park gunman, and Rovon and Rodney Wells, parents of Tyree Nichols, who died after being beaten by Memphis police, Biden called on lawmakers to pass both bipartisan police reform and a ban on assault weapons. He also urged congressional codification of abortion access, government-funded universal preschool, and improved mental health care for veterans and young people. So that gives you a sense of all of President Biden's priorities for the coming year. And that's that's really what the State of the Union has turned into. It's kind of a laundry list of what the president and uh, the White House uh, would like Congress to focus on in the coming year and, and as well as uh, things that the administration uh, will be focusing on. Well, and you noted in your recap of it on Twitter that abortion was mentioned um, pretty low on the list, if I'm saying that in the correct way. And so what's the significance of that, given this is the first State yeah. of the Union after Roe was overturned? Right. Well, so as, as I mentioned in this dispatch piece, compared to the economy, everything else got short shrift in, in Biden's speech. And I, I thought it was noteworthy that abortion didn't get brought up until well into the second half of the speech. I mean, he was almost two-thirds of the way through. And even then, it only got kind of a passing mention. I mean, of course, we know that President Biden and his administration are are very loud and vocal supporters of abortion. That's actually not new. Uh, But I, I just thought it was noteworthy where it was positioned because, as you just mentioned, this is the first State of the Union since the Dobbs decision, since the fall of Roe v. Wade. And to me, that just says something, that perhaps this doesn't merit the sort of political prioritization that many folks were thinking, you know, immediately following the the November elections. Uh, It's just, it's just, it's interesting to me. Uh, I would have thought ahead of the uh, State of the Union 
that given where we are, given that that Dobbs just occurred last summer, that uh, expanding abortion access and and just you know being the standard bearer uh, for the abortion regime, it would have actually been at the top of the State of the Union because studies have shown that for most folks, after the first fifteen or twenty minutes of watching. Folks start kind of channel surfing and going elsewhere and losing interest, and 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 that that's uh, that is uh, something to be noted. Does it mean that uh, we don't need to continue to be clear-eyed uh, about uh, the challenges that remain for defending life? Uh, does it uh, d- does it mean that 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 more will not emerge? Absolutely not. Um, we've got our work cut out for us on the pro-life side, and it's now uh, happening at the at the state level. At the same time, you can't help but think those folks that are the abortion activists over at Planned Parenthood, they probably are a little disappointed that abortion wasn't higher up or earlier in the State of the Union. And I got to be honest, their disappointment that they're feeling, that encourages me a little bit uh, as as we do our work here at the RLC or as I look out across uh, the pro-life landscape with other organizations that are, that are doing this important work. Yes, and we have and will continue to keep an eye on and talk about and put out resources regarding the pro-life movement, the pro-life work that we have uh, ahead of us, as you said, Brent. Uh, We will continue to denounce abortion and anything that the Biden administration does to advance abortion in in our country and in our our states. That, That goes without saying. We are clearly on the record regarding this. There are many other disagreements we would have with the Biden administration that we've talked about before. I'm curious to know what points, of, in the spirit of civility, what points of encouragement could we take from some of the things that President Biden said in his State of the Union? Yeah, I mean, look, he, you know, uh, th- this is obviously not the State of the Union address, you know, I would have given or written for him. Because I do think in light of the Dobbs decision, there is an opportunity here after the Dobbs decision to fully recognize the humanity of our preborn neighbors and, and protect them. And obviously, that's, that's not something that the President Biden did. Uh, but, you know, at various points, you know, like I'm thinking uh, at the end of the address, he used the phrase uh, image of God. And that, that's a line that gets deployed uh, by, by politicians um, fairly regularly and, and even presidents. Um, but it's not just a turn of phrase to, you know, toss out there. It is, in fact, a reality. And so while, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, it was a line in the, in the president's remarks, I think, you know, our job at the RLC is is to really help elected officials like the president or members of Congress understand the full implications of the Imago Day and how that should affect the policies uh, that we craft and, and, and the solutions that are passed from uh, the legislative branch or enacted in the executive branch. And so, you know, that's, that's one area. But in terms of maybe some policy proposals uh, that, that he highlighted, uh, there was a section there where he talked about the need to create more f- pro-family policies. Um, last year, the Southern Baptist Convention, our, our messengers uh, at the annual meeting passed a resolution saying we need more work in this area. So I think, okay, well, maybe there's maybe there's some uh, ground there where lawmakers could come together 
he talked about uh, the need to confront threats uh, internationally. And so, you know, he spent just a brief few moments talking about the threat from China. We would encourage uh, the administration and our federal government to do more to counter China morally. We've, we've said that uh, for a while, but he also mentioned uh, Vladimir Putin's illegal and destructive and, and an unjust uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine and, and why we need to keep uh, support going there. And he also spent uh, a few moments talking about the, the need for a solution for dreamers and more broadly, uh, immigration reform. And then there was a, there was a, a moment where he hinted at the need for border security. A- and so, look, d- in a Congress as, as divided as this one, am I optimistic uh, that any sort of major uh, policies are, are going to be put together? No. But it, it at least signaled to me that there, there's an outline for where maybe some folks can come together and, and create some solutions that, that could potentially move. And that's what I'm hopeful for. And that, that's what I want us to, to be a, a voice in, 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 in those sorts of conversations. Because in, in each of those areas I just mentioned, our convention of churches has spoken to. Uh, they, they, they've said the need, as I mentioned, for pro-family policies or uh, border security and, and immigration reform or continuing to stop the advance of regimes out there that denigrate uh, human dignity. And, and so, yeah, that, those are probably some of the things that, that stuck out to me. But even as I'm, I'm hopeful that, that maybe some sort of productive uh, work could be done in those areas, I'm also reminded of this. The, the State of the Union has largely become a political uh, messaging <laughs> tool. There's not a lot of, you know, examples out there where the president says, Okay, we, this is the way we want to go, and and Congress just leaps to action, and it it just occurs exactly as the president uh, said it. So that's I think where we find ourselves. Well, and what's wild is that we are really getting ready to blow into the next presidential election. So it's going to be election season soon, as you mentioned, and as Hannah Daniel, our colleague, mentioned in her article about the State of the Union prior to President Biden giving his speech. It'll be interesting to see how much productive legislation is actually accomplished in the midst of of moving into the next election cycle and the divided Congress. Yeah, a number of pundits have said they they detected that the president was more or less road testing some of his political messaging for when he does announce a re-election, which uh, there's a number of analysts who uh, have said in, in the wake of the State of the Union, that's probably the next big speech that he'll be giving uh, relatively soon. So, and I think we're also looking out later this month, uh, former governor of South Carolina, uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, she's teased that she has a big surprise coming on February 15th, and uh, most everyone suspects it's going to be a formal presidential announcement. So there will, right now, the only person who has declared a formal run is former President Donald Trump. Uh, many folks expect that from uh, Governor Haley uh, and Uh, Possibly President Biden will be joining them in the formal category soon. Okay, and it's right up your alley, all the election season stuff, all the political theater and drama. Get out your popcorn. (laughs) So stay tuned. So that was the big news domestically. Internationally, however, there was a massive tragedy that has dominated the news this week, and that was the massive earthquake that has struck 
Turkey and Syria. Uh, this report comes to us from NBC News, and it said this, the death toll from Monday's devastating earthquakes has soared past 16,000 and is expected to rise. The Timbler has become the deadliest since Japan's 9.0 magnitude quake in 2011, sparked a triple catastrophe that left more than an estimated 20,000 people dead. At least three U.S. citizens were among the thousands of people killed in Turkey, according to a State Department spokesperson. Desperate efforts to rescue survivors continue in Turkey and Syria as frigid conditions hamper progress in some areas. And and that's probably where I would uh, come to you because you mentioned you've seen some reports and it's just... Uh, it's just been heart-wrenching to read about the efforts to find survivors in the midst of this. Yes, and and to watch. they are Today they were showing footage of some of the youngest survivors who have been buried for 72 hours. Little kids, uh, a, a newborn who, babies being born in the rubble. So this newborn uh, was the only survivor in I don't know if it was a he or she, her family, um, he still had his umbilical cord attached and he was bruised and battered and, but it's going to be okay, but still now is an orphan. And uh, it's just, it's heart-wrenching. And Send Relief has been doing a lot of work over there. And they say this is the strong, one of the strongest earthquakes to hit the region in over a century. And talk about human dignity, our emphasis on human dignity, just doing whatever we can as Christians and as Southern Baptists to be able to serve and care for these people. I know a girl who is a, a missionary over in that area who has said, please pray for brothers and sisters that we know here. They've lost family members and friends. Send Relief has several prayer points on their website too to pray for the people, millions displaced from their homes. They've got no place to go. Three major airports were damaged. Mm. So that hampers relief efforts. In Syria, the areas impacted were already experiencing severe shortages of food, water, electricity, and heat. So now you can only imagine what that has added to. Turkey, pray for the local churches and and believers to respond. And one church in Southeast Turkey, Sen Relief says, uh, the building was destroyed. So just pray for the witness there. Pray that the Lord would would multiply fishes and loaves, so to speak, mm-hmm. and multiply efforts and multiply strength. I just, I, we cannot imagine what that's like. Yeah. Well, picking up there, the president of Sin Relief, Bryant Wright, he actually told Baptist Press this, tragedies like this are difficult to fathom, but we pray and trust that God will use this to reveal his great love for the people of Turkey and Syria. And then IMB president, Paul Chitwood said this, the needs are overwhelming, but Southern Baptist's response was immediate and will continue for as long as we have resources to meet the needs. And the story says this, Sin Relief is working with local partners in Syria and Turkey to respond to the immediate needs. Sin Relief partners distributed 1,000 blankets and 5,000 bottles of water in the first 24 hours, a spokesperson told Baptist Press. Workers are also distributing other emergency supplies to those who have been impacted and displaced from their home. So it makes me thankful uh, that we do have a compassion ministry like Sin Relief and that, you know, Sin Relief is made possible because of IMB and and NAM uh, coming together. So I'm thankful for the great leadership of uh, Dr. Chitwood and and Dr. Rizal. And then obviously uh, having such a gifted leader uh, like Bryant Wright, moving and coordinating and and helping our churches respond uh, to the needs arising from such a giant tragedy. 
again, it makes me thankful, but gosh, anytime that that Senron Leaf is engaged, it, it usually means that there has been some sort of devastation uh, across the globe. And we're including a link in the show notes that um, has these prayer points and then also has a form where you can give if you feel so led toward those relief efforts. And then finally, we wanted to highlight an article by our brother and friend, J.D. Greer, on TGC titled, Downplaying the Sin of Homosexuality Won't Win the Next Generation. And he is responding to famous mega church pastor, Andy Stanley, who uh, has had an influence in J.D. Greer's life over the years, and he, he talks about that in this article. But some comments surfaced that Andy Stanley made at a conference at his church in 2022 Uh, They've since been taken offline by the church, but there are enough, as J.D. Greer has pointed out, YouTube snippets and published notes that you can gather the gist of what Andy Stanley said. And it's not helpful or clear regarding the stance a pastor should take about homosexuality in his church. And in fact, it seems as if Andy Stanley is, you can come to the conclusion because of the lack of clarity that Andy Stanley is affirming. And of course, we are not on board with that. And we agree with what J.D. Greer writes about in this article, that downplaying the sin of homosexuality, not being clear about it, is not helpful and it's not kind in any way, shape, or form, given what our Lord has said about it in his word. So, Brent, will you speak a little bit to this article? Well, honestly, I can't, I can't, I can't uh, make it any better than, than J.D. did himself. And so, you're right, he, he, he critiques the fact that at a minimum, Andy Stanley's not being clear. But then he he goes more broadly than that because he he senses that there are a number of churches who who just don't want to talk about homosexuality. And he's he writes here that that's that's actually no longer an option. And this one paragraph I'll just read here. He is quoting Tim Keller, uh, and he says this as Keller, who pastored in Manhattan for thirty years and reached thousands of secular skeptics, says not talking about this is no longer an option. And then he goes on to write, if anything, it's counterproductive. At this point in history, it's better to acknowledge out of the gate that we Christians represent an entirely different kingdom with entirely different values and are under an entirely different authority. And and Lindsay, that that brings me, you know, just back to something you said uh, early in the podcast about how we are ambassadors. Uh, We're ambassadors for that kingdom. And the best way uh, to be faithful ambassadors is to clearly state uh, what that kingdom represents. And that's what J.D. is articulating here and, and throughout this piece. It's, it's a long piece, but it, it is, it's a tremendous piece. And he, he talks about, he pulls from his own ministry and the ways that he has been able to, to counsel individuals uh, through what, I mean, look, it, it's challenging, but just because it's challenging in our current moment doesn't mean the Bible doesn't clearly state what we should believe about this, the sin of homosexuality. Well, and we want to go to churches that faithfully preach the Word of God. And if you're going to preach, if you preach through the Word of God, you can't ignore these issues. can't ignore the sin of homosexuality. You can't ignore heterosexual sins. You can't ignore the sin of, of greed and of pride and of whatever it might be. And I liked what he, he started to talk about repentance in his article and mm. had quoted some other people. And he says, the call to repentance isn't just offensive to gay people. It's offensive to all of us. So the truth of the gospel and the call for us to turn from our sin and 
and the word of God confronting us with our various sins is, like we said, offensive to all of us. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. There are specific things that we have to give up and it's and it's hard. And he goes on to say, some fear we'll lose the next generation unless we make sexuality a non-issue. Maybe instead we should fear we've already lost the generation sitting in our churches who know nothing of denying self and taking up the cross. How terrible it would be to keep our churches full only to have revealed on that final day that our congregation members are the ones to whom Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me. Truly broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the door that leads to life. And so um, our churches are gonna pay a price for preaching clearly on a manner, a whole manner of issues, including homosexuality. And I'm thankful for JD's clarity here. We're all not gonna agree on the methods of dealing with some of these very sticky situations and very hard situations, especially in our culture of sexual revolution where nobody believes any absolutes anymore. But as Christians, we're gonna be the ones by God's grace, by his spirit, who stand on the truth, who proclaim the truth, and who welcome anybody who wants to come in those doors or over to our houses to hear that truth proclaimed and who want um, want someone to walk beside them as they seek to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. And this conversation, Lindsay, uh, it just, it reminds me, last year we hosted an online event uh, that was that was led by our colleague Jason Thacker, uh, called Discipling Your Church for a World in Sexual Crisis. And it, it touched on a number of these themes uh, that uh, J.D. Greer touched on in, in his piece. And it might be just a, a good resource for individuals who want to go a step further, either to equip themselves in ministry or just how to live out a faithful understanding of a biblical sexual ethic. And so it was, I remember at the time, we had a lot of good reviews uh, of folks who saw the program and who are continually going back to it uh, because it was so helpful. Yes, Brent. And as you mentioned, we will link to that as well as the other things that we talked about in our show notes. We have a lot of resources online if you look under the topic of sexuality on this topic that will help you as you are just seeking to be faithful in the midst of a world in sexual crisis. And it is our privilege to be able to serve Southern Baptists and believers as we all together take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus in the power of His Spirit. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm -hmm.